What unites our bipartisan coalition is that we strongly oppose an end run on our Constitution. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Good luck with that, Senator. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ 90.1. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN 94.7. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ 97.3. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, amongst other fine affiliates, both terrestrial and internet. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us as we blanket planet Earth five days a week. Not that the Earth needs a blanket at this point. <laughs> uh, good good day, Desi Doyen. Good How are day. you today? Are you holding up? I am. Amongst this, um, and I'm trying to figure, the, this American S show. Yes. I guess is the best way that we can uh, describe it. As South Carolina's Republican uh, Senator Lindsey Graham described it yesterday, that S show continues in Washington, D.C. today. Uh, and frankly, the fact that I'm quoting from Lindsey Graham at all here should underscore what an S show it really is. Things really <laughs> are these days right now. Uh, but amidst that S show, the fight over Donald Trump's racist screed against non-white nations and now a possible government shutdown this week because Donald Trump and Republicans refuse, apparently, to remove the threat of deportation for some 800,000 children of immigrants who came here through no fault of their own, many of them decades ago at this point. Um, Even with that going on, Republicans with the help of Democrats now, are on the verge of giving Donald Trump and his DHS, NSA, FBI, DOJ, CIA, all of the alphabet agencies, frankly, giving them new expanded warrantless surveillance powers over all Americans. Yes, really. We'll speak with Elizabeth Goitin of the Brennan Center about that momentarily. Uh, But speaking of that... uh, S show that we now seem to be in every day. What kind what kind of world are we at, Desi Doyen, where we've come uh, to this point when when a president of the United States just before his election 
allegedly pays $130,000 to a porn star as hush money to keep her from talking about his sexual liaisons with her while he was married to the now first lady. And really, almost nobody's talking about it. Yeah, it's almost like, okay. hey, nobody cares yeah, anymore. It's, it's small, all right. Yeah, it's small. Given everything else, who cares about that? Uh, well, and, and no wonder, I guess, because, you know, the story was first reported over the weekend by that lefty anti-Trump rag, the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> owned by uh, Fox News owner Rupert Murdoch, of course. The porn star who, who goes by the name Stormy Daniels now says she has she, she had no sexual relations with uh, Trump, nor did she receive any hush money payments from him. Though several news organizations, including Fox News, were said to have been talking to her about breaking the story just prior to the 2016 election. So CNN reports today that Fox actually spiked their story for some reason that had been filed and all set to go. But for some reason, they killed it right before air. Gosh, I wonder why. Now, I'm old enough to remember when folks like Fox News uh, used to support the impeachment of a sitting president for that sort of thing. Remember that? Way back when. Uh, so there's that, and it's barely a blip, given everything else that's going on. Oh, and then there's the new Republican governor in Missouri who reportedly tied or taped a woman uh, with whom he was having an affair to exercise equipment in his basement, blindfolded her, then took a naked picture of her along with a and gave her a blackmail threat should she ever mention his name. A bunch of Republicans now, I think we're up to five at last I checked. Uh, maybe I should say just five, but five Republicans in the Missouri state legislature have now called for Missouri Governor Eric Greitens who ran on a family values platform, naturally, <laughs> oh to step down. But the governor, who concedes the extramarital affair happened, but denies the blackmail part, uh, he is so far refusing to step aside, even as he's been forced to cancel appearances in my old home state of Missouri. Uh, and candidates who had planned to enlist his uh, support in their 28 campaigns are now tossing him quickly overboard to try to save themselves. That is probably a very good idea, particularly this year, if recent elections, including several held on Tuesday in a number of states. Yes, we had uh, it was Election Day once again on Tuesday, special elections around the country. If those uh, elections, the results from those elections offer any hint of the mood of the electorate right now as the 2018 election season gets underway. And, uh, frankly, apparently uh, seems to be picking up exactly where 2017 left off. In an upset victory on Tuesday, Democrats have now flipped, flipped a reliably Republican state Senate seat in Wisconsin. Obama had lost uh, this uh, Wisconsin's 10th Senate district by six points back in 2012. Hillary Clinton lost it by 17 points in 2016. But now Democrat Patty Schachner has defeated Republican state Congress uh, uh, state representative Adam Jarchow. Uh, in this special election on Tuesday night, which the Washington Post is describing as a stunning Democratic victory in a special election deep in the heart of Trump country, suggesting a blue tsunami could be forming. President Trump became the first Republican to carry Wisconsin, as you'll recall, 
the first one to carry it in a presidential election since Ronald Reagan uh, by running up his score in places like the rural 10th state Senate district, reports the Washington Post. Trump reportedly won there by 17 points in 2016, but a special election was triggered when Governor Scott Walker up there tapped a popular state senator who had held the seat since the year 2000 to become his agriculture uh, secretary. So on Tuesday night, Democratic candidate Patty Schachner ran in that special election and won by nine points. Wow, that's a big shift. That's a huge shift, going from Hillary losing there uh, by 17 points to the Democrat now winning by nine points. Wisconsin conservative talk radio legend, Charlie Sykes, who has been a, uh, a, a an ardent Trump critic, he called the results ominous, said his friends inside the GOP are now freaking out following those results on Tuesday night. He tweeted, uh, genuinely stunning setback for GOP in Wisconsin. Hard to overstate the anxiety this will cause. He uh, noted that Trump won this district with 59 percent of the vote. In 2016, previous Republican incumbents have won with 63% in that district. And then he went on to cite a, quote, prominent Wisconsin Republican who told him, quote, we are losing independent and educated women in droves. Well, yeah, <laughs> that would seem like the, the outcome. Yeah, you think? <laughs> They're finally starting to notice. How long has this taken them? Governor Scott Walker uh, also appeared to be freaking out about this on Tuesday night because he now appears to be a lot more vulnerable in his quest for a third term. He's running for governor in 2018 in Wisconsin, uh, hoping for a third term and uh, issued a flurry of panicked tweets uh, around midnight on Tuesday, said Senate District 10 special election win by a Democrat is a wake up call for Republicans in Wisconsin. Went on to tweet more. Wake up call, he said. Can't presume that voters know we're getting positive things done in Wisconsin. Help us share the good news. Wake up call. Can't presume voters know that more people are working than ever before. Help us share the good news. Wake up call. Can't presume that voters know that we invested more actual dollars into schools than ever before. Help us share the good news. That was Governor Scott Walker freaking out on Twitter last yeah, night. Sounds like it. Uh, unlike the uh, with with Roy Moore in the Alabama Senate race, Washington Post notes, uh, Team Trump cannot blame a flawed candidate here. Apparently, the GOP nominee, Adam Jarchow, is a solid assemblyman. He ran a spirited campaign, but it wasn't even close to enough that even though Republicans had significantly outspent the Democrats, Americans for Prosperity. Backed by uh, the Koch brothers, uh, they poured $50,000 into this race. Americans for Prosperity and the Koch brothers have spent a lot of money in Wisconsin in recent years. But their $50,000 did not do the trick. Two other GOP-aligned groups, also funded by the business community, contributed another $80,000. But it was not enough. Asked whether her win is a harbinger for Democratic gains this fall, Patty Schachner told the Associated Press, quote, it certainly could be. My message has always been be kind, be considerate, and we need to help people when they're down. She said we just need to be kind to people who are less fortunate and just help. Hmm. 
be kind, help people? Could that be a message for 2018 at this point? Maybe so. The uh, upset now uh, in Wisconsin is the 34th Democratic pickup uh, so far uh, since uh, in the 2017-2018 cycle. Dave Weigel notes, on average, even in races that went against them, Democrats have improved on their margins from 2016 uh, in huge numbers. In other Tuesday elections, Democratic uh, D- Democrat Dennis Degenhardt won 43 percent of the vote in Wisconsin's 58th Assembly District. Not enough to to take the seat. But in 2016, Hillary Clinton won just 28 percent of the vote there. So that's a 30 point jump in that one district in Iowa's sixth House district. Democrat Rita Zhang uh, won 44 percent of the vote on Tuesday night. Uh, the uh, the party's nominee, however, won just 35 percent in that seat, so almost a 10 percent jump. In South Carolina's 99th House District, Democrat Cindy Boatwright lost, but she got 43 percent of the vote in a district where the party had not run a candidate for that seat in decades. Wow. So they bothered to run someone and they got 43 percent of the vote out of the blue. Uh, nice going, Democrats. Uh, don't forget to keep running candidates. That's a nice way to win elections. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel says that control now of the Wisconsin Senate is in play in 2018. Yes, Democrats could take over control of the Wisconsin Senate. That, of course, has significant implications for 2020 redistricting. Once uh, the uh, Democrat is seated now in this uh, in the Senate, Republicans will hold an 18 to 14 advantage in the Wisconsin Senate with one district vacant. That seat uh, had belonged to a Republican who has joined the Walker administration as well. That one, however, won't be decided until November when 17 of the state's 33 Senate districts are up for reelection. Essentially, all they need to do at this point is flip two seats. And the Democrats will control the Wisconsin Senate. That's big, especially with redistricting coming in 2020 in a state which has uh, gerrymandered the state, you know, to ensure that Republicans hang on to control. Democratic pollster Will Jordan at Global Strategy Group was uh, delighted about these uh, these results. He tweeted He said, quote, I mean, I don't want to read too much into it, but if the rest of Wisconsin swung as much as tonight's special elections, Scott Walker would lose by 25 points this November. The Democratic public policy polling firm PPP uh, tweeted that they had found Scott Walker already trailing a generic Democrat by five points last October, October 2017. And they said tonight's Wisconsin special election results sure didn't make us question that finding. Daily Coast political writer Stephen Wolf tweeted, Huge Wisconsin Democrats flipped a GOP state Senate seat in a special election, putting the GOP's majority in play in November. Dems could break Scott Walker's grip on Wisconsin in 2018. This, he said, is a crucial development for blocking another GOP gerrymander of Wisconsin after 2020. Scott Walker could be tough for Dems to beat in 2018, but if Dems capture a legislative chamber, 
the courts would likely have to draw nonpartisan maps up Ooh. there in the Badger State. So this um, S show could ultimately, eventually, have a happyish ending here, perhaps even in 2018, unless Democrats figure out how to blow it. Never count them out in that regard. And by way of just one example, I point you towards the U.S. House and Senate. While all of, uh, while all of Donald Trump and the Republican Party's ugly politics continue and the hope for change in 2018 elections moves forward, Republicans and Democrats seem to be finding something to agree on in Congress, reauthorizing a warrantless surveillance program that allows the Trump administration to read your emails and listen to your phone calls without ever receiving a warrant from any court before doing so. The strange bedfellows fight over Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. That is next on the broadcast as we're joined by Elizabeth Goitine of the Brennan Center. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast on the Watchtower here. As usual, I'm Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Yesterday on the show, I briefly mentioned the new report from the Departments of Justice and Homeland Security charging that three out of four alleged terrorists charged in the U.S. are foreign-born. The wildly misleading report is being used to justify the Trump administration's tough anti-immigrant anti-undocumented immigrant and anti-legal immigrant policies. I noted the trick being used by the DOJ and DHS in their uh, in their report to come up with their figures in that most domestic terrorists are not actually charged with terror crimes because most terror laws are focused on international terrorism, not domestic terror. Those crimes are far and away, those domestic terror crimes are carried out far and away more by white domestic right-wing extremists in numbers that far outpace anything that Islamic extremism even comes close to in this country. Thus, those crimes with terror in their official names offer a wildly misleading read on the real threats being faced every day by Americans. But moreover, the study is wildly dishonest because it argues that, uh, quote, out of the 549 people convicted in the U.S. of international terrorism since 9-11, 402 of them, or nearly three out of four, are, quote, foreign born. But to get to that number, uh, they have to include foreigners who committed crimes on foreign soil before being extradited to the U.S., Cases which have no bearing whatsoever on immigration issues. That's right. Commit a terror crime overseas, 
get extradited for trial to the U.S., and you will then be included in the number of American immigrants in the dishonest DHS DOJ report. So those folks, the folks who created a misleading report like that to push for their political agenda against immigrants, those folks, those are the ones that both Republicans and Democrats now in Congress are set to offer newly expanded powers to to allow them to record the phone calls of and track the emails of any and all Americans with no court warrant, with no due process or even probable cause. What could possibly go wrong with that idea? Last week, as you will recall, while watching Fox News in the morning and apparently learning about the dragnet spying provision called Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act, Donald Trump decided he was outraged by the so-called Section 702 provision that was about to pass in the U.S. House at the time, even though his own administration had long been lobbying Congress to support the six-year reauthorization of that program. Trump tweeted, This is the act that may have been used to so badly surveil and abuse the Trump campaign by the previous administration. Well, after Trump's tweet, the U.S. House, which was about to vote on the measure, broke into chaos. House Speaker Paul Ryan was forced to call Trump personally to explain the bill. And two hours later, Trump finally treat, uh, tweeted, well, with that being said, I have personally directed the fix to the unmasking process since taking office. And today's vote is about foreign surveillance of foreign bad guys on foreign land. We need it. Get smart, Trump tweeted. Well, that tweet elicited uh, one from Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, who smartly noted uh, via Twitter. So Trump says FISA bill is about foreign surveillance of foreign bad guys on foreign land and that it was used to surveil and abuse the Trump campaign. Wow, he says, exactly what part of Trump campaign involved foreign bad guys on foreign land? Well, that's an interesting question, Senator. Nonetheless, the measure was then quickly approved in the U.S. House by a vote of 256 to 164, with the help of no small number of Democrats, including minority leader Nancy Pelosi. Congressman Gerald Nadler, Democrat of New York and ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, dissented from the Democratic leader in the House, charging that the bill is, quote, written by the intelligence community for the intelligence community. And then on Tuesday of this week in the U.S. Senate, as reported by Reason Scott Shackford, the Senate joined the House in rejecting reforms to federal surveillance laws to make sure that the private communications of Americans are not snooped on by officials without warrants. The Senate voted 60 to 38 in favor of cloture to end debate and to prevent any amendments prior to a formal up or down vote on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Amendments Reauthorization of 2017. Though the law, he notes, has the word foreign in its name, the reality is that it has been used to collect and access communications from Americans, often without warrants and without our knowledge. A bipartisan group of lawmakers in the Senate, led by Senators Rand Paul and Ron Wyden, have been trying to amend the bill so that it would require the FBI and National Security Agency 
to get warrants in order to query or access communications records like emails or phone calls from American citizens when they get drawn into international surveillance. They were joined at the presser by other supporters in the Senate, including Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, who said the U.S. should not be in the business of warrantless searches of dragnet surveillance of American citizens. Opposing warrantless mass surveillance is not a partisan issue. Well, neither, apparently, is supporting such mass surveillance. That doesn't seem to be a partisan issue either, apparently. Tuesday's vote means that uh, reforms to provide stronger Fourth Amendment protections from unwarranted searches will not happen and a filibuster will not actually stop the scheduled vote in the U.S. Senate. So who is pulling the strings at the White House since Trump clearly has no clue what this bill does or doesn't do? And why are Democrats seemingly foolish enough to give the Trump administration such extraordinary powers to surveil Americans? For that matter, why should any U.S. administration, Republican or Democrat, have such sweeping powers that, as critics charge, are in strict violation of the Constitution's Fourth Amendment's uh, privacy protections against unwarranted search and seizure? Writing on Tuesday... At the New York Daily News, after approval in the U.S. House last week and in advance of the Senate vote to end debate and move to the up or down vote on the Senate floor on Tuesday, the Brennan Center's Elizabeth Goitein argued once again for Democrats to step up to block this measure. It was opposed by Democratic Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, but that apparently was not enough to keep the Democrats together as the vote to successfully block a filibuster passed in the U.S. Senate by one single vote, with nearly 20 Democrats voting to end debate, to close off all avenues for amendments and proceed to an up or down vote on the Senate floor. Joining us now to discuss this fine mess is Elizabeth Goitin. She is the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at NYU's Brennan Center for Justice. Prior to the Brennan Center, she served as counsel to U.S. Senator Russ Feingold of Wisconsin, who I miss very much, uh, where she focused on national security, government secrecy and privacy rights, and as a trial, a trial attorney in the civil division of the Department of Justice. Liza Goitin, welcome back to the broadcast. Thanks very much. So, uh, in simple terms, what is Section 702, and, and how does this provision differ from, for example, the sweeping collection of every American phone call that was supposedly banned by the Obama administration after that program was exposed by uh, NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden some years ago? Section 702 was passed in 2008 to codify President George W. Bush's warrantless wiretapping program. Mm -hmm. um, what it does is it allows the National Security Agency, the NSA, to uh, collect all of the communications of foreigners overseas, even if they are communicating with Americans, even if those communications are somehow passing over or stored on U.S. soil without getting a warrant. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea is that the targets have to be foreigners overseas. However, because the way they just just practice, to just to clarify because foreigners uh, no one seems to argue uh, have any sort of uh, constitutional protections against being spied upon by the US, correct? 
That's right. I mean, that's what the courts have generally held, okay. although the Supreme Court, uh, you know, jurisprudence on this is a little bit less than crystal clear. But yeah, that's, that's generally what people think. Okay. Um, and so, uh, so in order to have a warrantless wiretapping program, which is what Section 702 is, uh, the targets of surveillance have to be foreigners overseas. Uh, what ends up happening is that the NSA pulls in massive amounts of Americans' communications, partly because Americans communicate with foreigners overseas mm-hmm. uh, and for various other reasons as well. So a lot of Americans' communications get caught up in the net. And I should mention that the foreign targets don't have to be bad guys, uh, which is, you know, they're always described as bad guys. They don't have to be suspected of any wrongdoing whatsoever under the law. Um, so that really means that that kind of opens up the possibility of, of sweeping in a lot of innocent Americans' Uh, conversations with their friends and relatives and business partners overseas. Um, Congress knew this was going to happen, and so uh, they provided in the 2008 law that the government should minimize uh, the retention and sharing and use of all of this, uh, quote-unquote, incidentally collected uh, Americans' information. And what that means in general is that they're, they're supposed to, the agencies are supposed to redact it uh, mm-hmm. or delete it. Um, but what we learned from Edward Snowden's disclosures is that the government was doing the exact opposite. The agencies were combing through all of this data, all these com- communications, searching for the phone calls and emails of specific Americans so that they could uh, read them or, or listen to them and, and use them in their own uh, investigations. And the FBI in particular was doing this as a matter of routine, even in just ordinary criminal investigations, and regardless of whether they had any, um, you know, enough evidence to even open an investigation. So in, in uh, theory, so ju- l- let me jump in to ask, so in theory, uh, I call someone, a, a friend or a family member overseas, there is, uh, it, it's perfectly legal and, and theoretically constitutional for that to be recorded because there is a foreigner uh, or someone in a foreign land on the other end, the uh, NSA or whoever it is records that phone call. And because they're talking to me here in the U.S., my side of the conversation only is supposed to be either deleted or in some way minimized or masked so that it cannot be used by uh, by American uh, law enforcement, by the FBI or, or, or so forth. Is, do I understand that correctly? That's the basic idea. I think it's important to understand that part of what makes the, the warrantless collection constitutional in the first place mm-hmm. is the, uh, the procedures at the back end to minimize mm-hmm. Americans' information. Without those minimization uh, requirements in place, it probably would not be considered uh, reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. It probably would not be constitutional. So it's all part of a package. Yes, the government can legally collect on foreign targets without a warrant, but it's constitutionally required to minimize uh, Americans' mm-hmm. communication. And so and with, with it's minimized, then you're, you're charging uh, and critics charge then that the FBI nonetheless is still able to go in there and look at what Brad Friedman is talking about when he's, when he's talking to a family member overseas. How, how is that minimized? How is that masked? It's not minimized. It's not masked. The FBI uh, sorts through unminimized raw data to, 
to find this information. Um, you know, you ask how that's how that's possible, how that's constitutional. It's an excellent question. Um, very, very few courts uh, have looked at this. Really, the FISA court was the only court that looked at it up until fairly recently. Uh, the FISA court said it was fine. Uh, I guess the statute just wasn't explicit enough about what minimize actually means, and, and it's actually not very explicit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the FISA court said, no problem, this is constitutionally reasonable. Uh, and the, uh, there have since then been a couple of district courts that have looked at um, this practice and have sort of followed the FISA court's lead. And I have to be honest, they, they, they you know, I have great respect for, for federal judges um, as, as a general matter. Um, these decisions were pretty thin in terms of the reasoning on this. So, but I would say this, it's, it's anything but a well-settled question of constitutional law whether this practice is constitutional. And um, it should be added here, the foreign intel- the FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court, that's a, that's a secret court, is it not, where there is really no one uh, other than the, I guess, the, the, the prosecutor or the people who, who want to uh, use this authorization arguing their case, or is there an adversary in there arguing the other side of it uh, before the FISA court? It has traditionally been a secret court with only the government arguing in front of the court. Then in 2015, Congress changed the law. Uh, this was really the only uh, sort of significant rollback of surveillance practices that we've had since, since 9-11. Um, and as part of that law, the, there was a group of lawyers uh, called Amiki uh, who were established, um, and they were available essentially to weigh in if the court was considering uh, you know, I- important questions of, of, that were sort of new as a matter of law or fact, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so those lawyers can come in and pr- provide another perspective, and they, they, they did that in, in a case um, that was decided in 2015, late 2015, um, looking at this practice of sorting through Section 702 data looking for Americans' communications which is often referred to as backdoor searches. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was somebody arguing the other side. Uh, the FISA court is not used to that. Ah. <laughs> it has a long tradition of hearing only from the government. And really, part of the, one of the problems with the FISA court as an oversight body is that when you have this ongoing uh, relationship, uh, in this case between the government attorneys and the judges of the FISA court, and they perceive themselves, as they do, um, as sort of working on a common endeavor mm. over a long period of time. At that point, this, this newly appointed amicus becomes the outsider. Mm. Um, and it, it's not very surprising to me that, that, um, that the court did not uh, accept the, the outsider's uh, view of things. How is this uh, authorisa- reauthorization uh, different from what had already been in place under Section 02 now, uh, sec- Section 702 going back to 2008? Is this just an extension of that same law, or have new provisions been added to make it either better or worse? I know that both in the House and the Senate there was an attempt uh, to put forward uh, an amendment to this by civil libertarians. That was uh, voted down in the House, and I don't think it was even allowed to come up for a vote in the U.S. Senate. So uh, I guess there's two questions there. What would that amendment have done, and uh, is this reauthorization that looks like it's going to sail through now, uh, is it different in any way? Have any safeguards been added at all to the uh, to the reauthorization? Sure. 
so basically, after it became known through Snowden's leaks that the government was engaging in this practice of backdoor searches, and there was one other practice that we learned about. Uh, it's called abouts collection. It's you know not a very uh, mm-hmm. uh, not not the kind of name that trips off the tongue exactly. But right. abouts collection means collecting uh, communications that include certain information about a target, even if the communication is not to or from the target. And that means wholly domestic communications among Americans can get picked up. So these two practices seemed very much at odds with the spirit, if not the letter of the 2008 law. I, I have to go back to that. Why, if, how would that work? If, if it's communications between two Americans, how are they now able to search even that? Well, they're able to collect it, even though the target of collection has to be a foreigner overseas because of this legal fiction that target doesn't mean the person involved in the communication it, or the person whose communications it is. It applies to people merely mentioned in a communication. So let's say Which I talk to a bad guy in uh, wherever, uh, London, uh, take your pick, overseas. Because I have talked to that guy, now now the U.S. Uh, now the uh, U.S. government can use that to, to do an about search to say, well, who else has Brad Friedman been talking to? Essentially? Oh, no, actually, it's a little different than that. It's okay. at the collection point, not at the search point. So at the point of collection, what it means is that if you are talking not to the bad guy, mm-hmm. let's, just call it, let's just call him the foreign guy. Okay. Because, frankly, they're just, we have no reason to think that they're all bad. Okay. And there's nothing that requires that in the statute. Right. So instead of, of collecting you talking to the foreign target, uh, the NSA has, for many, many years, was collecting conversations between you and me uh-huh. that that included the foreign target's email address, for example. So if we happen to have certain information about a foreign target in our email, the NSA said it could go ahead and collect that, even though wow. neither you nor I, uh, to my knowledge, is a foreigner overseas. Wow. So okay. uh, so that's what about the collection was. So that was... So there's, first of all, there's the collection of purely domestic communications, mm-hmm. and then on the back end, there's the searching through uh, the whole the whole pile because about about collection is a small fraction of the whole pile. Okay. Uh, but the government says it can search through the whole pile using yours or my uh, email address, mm-hmm. whatever identifying information they want to use to find our communications and read them regardless of whether we are, there's any evidence that we've engaged in any wrongdoing. Okay, so, so, uh, so... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so these practices were revealed, and so Congress... And they were revealed after 2012, the last time that Congress reauthorized 702. So this time Congress had a choice. It could either clarify in the new law, in the, in the reauthorization, no, that's not what we meant, uh, about the collection is, you know, targeting someone means you're collecting their communications, not other people who just mentioned them. Mm-hmm. And and when we say minimize, we mean that you don't go looking through these communications looking for Americans' communications. That was option one. That is more or less what uh, the Amash <laughs> Amendment mm-hmm. in the House would have done. And the way it dealt with backdoor searches was by saying, okay, you can look for an American's communication if you get a warrant. So if you know you're looking for an American, you have to go to a court and get a probable cause warrant before you go accessing their communications. Sounds totally reasonable. Um, uh, sounds very good to me. Yeah. Uh, the, other, the other route Congress could have gone was the opposite route, which was endorsing what had been happening, what was part of the practice, and giving 
congressional blessing to something that had actually been going on anyway. And that's what is happening. Oh. That's what we're seeing Congress do. Now, there are enough, uh, and this is driven primarily by Republican leadership, but mm-hmm. there are enough Tea Party-style Republicans who have really rallied in support of greater privacy protections mm-hmm. that the only way to get something through was to make it look like it contained some reforms. So the bill that we are, that's making its way through, that, that mm-hmm. passed in the House and that got passed closer in the Senate, mm-hmm. has these uh, little gestures in it that are supposed to be reassuring. But if you look behind them, what you have is a bill that actually codifies backdoor searches, warrantless access to Americans' mm-hmm. emails, and codifies, actually even broadens the type of abouts collection that is allowed, because not only will the NSA, uh, as long as it gets the FISA court's approval and gives Congress 30 days' notice, uh, not only will it be allowed to collect communications that include a foreign target's email address, but it will be able to collect domestic communications that nearly contain a reference to a foreign target. And remember that targets can be organizations as well as people. So if we assume that ISIS Mm -hmm. is a target of surveillance under Section 702, which I imagine it is, um, then if you and I send each other an email talking about, you know, the latest abominations Uh. committed by ISIS that were revealed, just a conversation about current events, or let's say Vladimir Putin. I'm guessing he's a target. Let's say we send an email to each other saying, hey, do you think Putin actually interfered, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's fair game. Well, if I can write, I can write you an email and say, "Hey, Liza, can you come and uh, talk, talk to us on the show uh, today about the latest ISIS bombing?" And that alone yeah, would yeah. would trigger would would trigger exactly. And, it, and as far as I know, you and I oh. have already sent those emails. I don't. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I don't even probably. Know. Yeah, we probably yeah. are already being. Uh, so, yeah. but you have lawmakers now on really on both. You mentioned uh, ju- the Justin Amash uh, led amendment in the House. He's a Republican from uh, Michigan, I believe. Um, civil li- libertarians on both the left and the right uh, seem to oppose this measure. So, I guess uh, how has it passed at this point, and why didn't Democrats hold the line on this? As far as you can tell, why would they give these sort of sweeping powers? Um, frankly, uh, to any administration, but uh, much less the Donald Trump administration. It's a failure of Democratic leadership. That is certainly part of it. Uh, at the last minute, um, Chuck Schumer uh, said that he would vote no on cloture, but he, 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 he kind of hedged that and said it's because I want the ability uh, to, you know, I think amendments should be in order, and I think we should have the chance to look at amendments, but the bill itself is not bad. It, it makes improvements to the law, which is mm-hmm. not true. It actually takes the law backwards. Um, you know, Representative Pelosi, Minority Leader Pelosi in the House, actually um, did more, even more damage standing up right before uh, the vote and so coming out in support mm-hmm. of the bill and opposing um, the amendment that w- would have made these improvements. Mm. And then a, a whole bunch of Democrats kind of kind of went went along with her, and mm-hmm. and you know there were I guess about 18 Democrats, one independent who caucuses with the Democrats who uh, did the, took the same route in the Senate. Um, you know why? I mean, it, it, 
So I mentioned there's a, there was a failure of leadership. I think there's a failure of imagination. Um, for many, many years now, it's been drilled into the heads of, of these members that you know Section 702 is a vital counterterrorism tool. Um, I think a lot of people, when they, as far you know, I have no reason to question that. It's, it's presumably true, but all of the public examples, at least, that have been given, and all of the claims that have been made, frankly, mm-hmm. by the government about 702, relate to this core ability to target a foreigner overseas without a warrant. There have been no success stories made public or even described in any kind of general way that involved backdoor searches or that involved a bounce collection. So, you know, the reforms that people are talking about to shore up protections for Americans' privacy, they leave the core functionality of the law intact. But I just think a lot of members just didn't bother to think it through at that level. No. They, they, you know, they heard court, you know, or vital counterterrorism authority, and they stopped listening. And, and frankly, that happens way too often in, in Congress, that people hear the words national security, and they, they back down. Yeah, and they're, they're afraid they're going to be, uh, you know, called soft on terror or whatever uh, instead of uh, standing up. I, and, and I, to some extent, understand that uh, when there is not that uh, voice, that loud voice from the, you know, the left and the right, from the civil libertarians, guys like Ron Wyden, Elizabeth Warren saying no, no, no on this. Uh, and yet they fall for it. <sighs> Every time, it seems. Eliza, two more very quick questions. I'm almost out of time here, but if if Donald Trump has no clue what this program is or does, as seems apparent from his tweets uh, uh, last week on this, any any sense of who is the one issuing the uh, White House memoranda in favor of this uh, bill that he supposedly supports, but apparently didn't know he supported it until he was told as much uh, after his initial tweet last week? The intelligence community is united behind, uh, you know, getting this law reauthorized and getting it reauthorized with all of the authorities that are currently either part of the law or interpreted to be part of the law. And and there was a full court press uh, by uh, the int- intelligence officials, including Dan Coates, who is the director of national intelligence. Intelligence. They're the ones who know what the law does. Unfortunately, they're not usually very um, upfront about all the things the law does when they talk about it. They have a tendency to refer to it as a counterterrorism law, even though the targets, as I said, the foreign targets don't have to be suspected of any wrongdoing whatsoever, let oh. alone terrorism. Um, and they very rarely mention um, you know, the, the aspects that touch uh, very significantly on Americans' privacy. Um, so that's unfortunate. I, you know, mm-hmm. really, I don't feel that there was a full and honest debate about this law and what it does. In the Senate, there was um, you know, no floor debate right up until the last minute. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of hearings, but really just not the sort of um, thinking through of these issues and parsing these issues that something this significant really requires. Because we're all distracted by uh, the porn stars and Russia and which country uh, Donald Trump is uh, using vulgar words to describe uh, it's impossible to keep up. Uh, Liza Goitin, can this reauthorization, once it is signed by uh, Trump, uh, can it, will it uh, be challenged in court by the Brennan Center or anybody else, as far as you know, and uh, if so, on, on what basis? Well, it's very hard to challenge this law because in order to challenge it, you have to establish standing. You have to show that you were a subject of surveillance. Mm. And everything about the operation of 702 is highly classified. And so people who have tried to challenge it in the past have been blocked again and again because they couldn't show 
standing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, there are, a, a, there's one challenge uh, in the Fourth Circuit right now that uh, is still alive. Um, and then there, the other way that this can be challenged is when Section 702 derives evidence is used against people in court, um, that then they are supposed to be notified and they can raise challenges. And there are a couple of those still wending their way through the courts. Uh, the Supreme Court just uh, refused to hear an appeal from what I, what I would say is a bad decision in, in, the, in the Ninth Circuit. Um, but these cases are still bubbling along. It's quite possible that we will see at some point uh, what's called a circuit split, which is two different federal appeals courts coming to two different decisions, mm-hmm. and maybe at that time the Supreme Court will look at it again. Elizabeth Goitin, co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at NYU's Brennan Center for Justice. Uh, you can follow her work on the Twitters at Liza Goitin. You can follow the Brennan Center on the Twitters as well at Brennan Center. And, of course, on their website at BrennanCenter.org. Liza, uh, thanks for all you you do and you guys do. Keep up the good fight. I suspect we'll be shouting again uh, sometime in the very near future. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me. You bet. Okay, quick break, and we are back with more Bradcast on this S-Show Day. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Wide open spaces, Desi Joy. Right <laughs> yeah, well, even if you could, you're you may be losing some of those wide open spaces. Get to that story in a moment. I was chatting with uh, uh, Liza Goitin. Thanks again um, to her. I was chatting with her off air. She says it's remarkable that Republicans and Democrats uh, can't come together over immigration to block hundreds of thousands of uh, b- people who have been here for decades from being deported. They can't come together on health care for children, the, the CHIP program, which needs to be reauthorized. But spying on Americans without a warrant? No problem. They're all together on that. It's incredible. Yeah, it's 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 it, it kind of blows the mind. But, you know, that's where we are. She also uh, notes that this is the closest that we have ever been. There's an encouraging note that this is the closest we've ever been to overturning Section 702 at all, because really it just came down to one vote. In that dramatic uh, cloture vote to, to end the filibuster on Tuesday night, we've never been that close. Uh, so they were almost able to block it. So moving in the right direction? One hopes. At least, maybe. One hopes. Let's hope it holds. Uh, not moving in the right direction is the, is the Trump administration, at least according to three quarters of the members of the federally chartered board that advises the National Park Service. They all abruptly quit 
on Monday night. Out of frustration, they said that Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke has refused to meet with them or convene even a single meeting over the past year. Now, they are required by law to meet twice a year. Right. And they didn't meet for an entire year. The resignation of nine out of 12 of the NPS Advisory Board members leaves the federal government without a functioning body to designate national historic or national landmarks. So even if they wanted to do that, they couldn't do that. And, of course, we know that Ryan Zinke and Donald Trump have been removing uh, national historic and national landmarks. This also underscores the extent to which federal advisory bodies have become marginalized under the Trump administration. In May 2017, Zinke had suspended all outside committees at the Interior Department while his staff reviewed their composition and their work. In a letter to the secretary, Departing board chair Tony Knowles, a former Alaska governor, wrote that he and eight other members, quote, have stood by waiting for the chance to meet and continue the partnership as prescribed by law, as you note. Yep. They said, we understand the complexity of transition, but our requests to engage have been ignored and the matters on which we wanted to brief the new department team are clearly not part of its agenda. So they just quit. Some Interior Department advisory bodies apparently are operating, according to The Washington Post, but others are frozen out because the department has yet to approve their updated charters, as also legally required that under the Federal Advisory Committees Act, two of the Bureau of Land Management's resource advisory councils, the Rocky Mountain and Southwest Colorado Uh, advisory councils had to postpone meetings scheduled for Thursday because they were out of date because their charter had not yet been updated in the full year now that they have been that the Trump administration has been in office. Yeah, I know. It's it's pretty mind blowing again this as well. I mean, they haven't been consulted on these decisions that have uh, come down recently from the Trump administration, Mm -hmm. these proposed fee hikes. Remember, they want to double the fees to get into the Grand Canyon National Park from thirty dollars to seventy dollars. Eighty. Eighty at some of them. At some of them. Exactly. Which, you know, will put it out of range for most low and middle income families. Yeah, the the. article notes that the National Park System Advisory Board was established in 1935, only to be broken in 2017 by the Trump administration, apparently. Uh, In recent years, it has advised Interior on how to address climate change, among other issues, how to encourage younger visitors to frequent the parks. Well, you know one way to not encourage them? Charge them $80 to Just to walk in, yes. Their own park. Yeah. The board is required by law to meet twice a year, as you note, but it has not convened since Trump took office in last January. Members, most of whom have worked together for seven years, were surprised to not be consulted on Interior's recent decision to increase those visitors' fees and to reverse a ban on plastic water bottles in the park system. They said they were uh, frozen out of the process entirely. The board members' actions come as uh, one of Z- this is amazing. One of Zinke's top deputies, the assistant secretary for insular areas, uh, he plans to move into the Washington offices that the National Park Service has occupied for half a century. Yeah, they're pushing them out. Yep, they're going to be located elsewhere in the building. Zinke has identified repairing the park system's aging infrastructure as one of his top priorities. 
but he has yet to nominate a National Park Service director. And to make it clear, the Trump administration plans to cut the National Park Service budget, making fixing those problems much, much, much harder. They responded uh, to the uh, to this mass resignation the U.S. Interior Department did today. Uh, And and this response is mind blowing. Uh, This from Reuters. Um, We welcome their resignations and would expect nothing less than quitting from members who found it convenient to turn a blind eye to women being sexually harassed at national parks. What? That's from Interior Department spokesperson Heather Swift in an emailed statement. She added it was, quote, patently false to say the department had not engaged the board when as recently as January 8th, That would be last week. We were working with the board to renew their charter, to schedule a meeting and fill vacancies. So that is a year after Trump took office. They were just now getting around to renewing their charter and scheduling a meeting. And then they criticized the people who resigned. The uh, head of the of the Center for Western Priorities, he said uh, in a statement, quote, yeah. celebrating the mass resignation of respected scholars is chilling. And their charter did not include dealing with the sexual harassment problem that appears to be uh, going through the national park system. So this had nothing to do with them? No. With the, and, and by the way, there That's was not their deal. a number of Republicans on this board. So it's not like this was, you know, a bunch of Democrats trying to embarrass uh, the Trump administration. They've claimed that the... National Park Service was afflicted with a culture of sexual misconduct during the administration of Barack Obama that was not adequately addressed by the previous leadership. And if there's anything that comes to mind when you think about the Trump administration, it's their fight against sexual harassment. (laughs) Jesus. Did I mention at the top of the show that he uh, settled with a porn star for $130,000 allegedly? I believe you did. Yeah. Did I mention the 20 women that uh, accused him of sexual harassment before the election? Oh, we're out of time? All right. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Elizabeth Goitin of the Brennan Center for Justice, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always greatly appreciated. You can download our programs anytime for free at bradblog.com. Though we uh, greatly thank those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to try to tell the truth over your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Bradblog. I'll see you there. And until then, we'll see you tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey.